Welcome everyone to episode 119, Kidney Organoids. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. Okay, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. Dalen, how is it going over there? I'm hanging in. I'm on the edge of my seat about this North Korea thing. You know, by the time this thing is meant to air, it'll be old news. It'll be a week over. But (laughs) right now, it could be peace on Earth or nuclear warfare as far as from where I'm sitting. So I don't know. We'll have to see how that pans out. Can't wait. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I can wait for the nuclear warfare thing. (laughs) It's going to be that. I prefer to wait. But, yeah, uh, fingers crossed for denuclearization. I mean, that's the way we want to go, but we've hoped for that in the past. But, you know, this is not a show about politics. I, my apologies. Sorry. I know, but these things that, you know, they're on the forefront of our minds at this point in time. But we're going to talk about some science. So let's get down to business. Make sure everyone out there, you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com. You can find all of our show notes there, past episodes and other great resources, and you can subscribe to our newsletter. Of course, there's always social media, so you can join us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher so that you can get new episodes automatically downloaded to your electronic device. Okay, we've got a great show ahead today. In addition to the latest science and stem cell news, we're going to be talking with Dr. Benjamin Friedman, Benno Benjamin, Ben, from the University of Washington, about his work studying kidney disease and his latest paper in Cell Stem Cell that uses robots to create kidney organoids. You ready? Almost. Before we do that, scientists, we need your votes. Last month, Stem Cell Technologies asked scientists around the world to submit their favorite Stem cell images are hashtag stem selfies. And boy, did you guys deliver. Wow. Stem cell posted the 20 finalist stem selfies on their Facebook page. And now they're looking for you, dear listeners and stem cell experts, to choose the winner out of the top five. All right. These five images will also be on display at Stem Cells booth at ISSCR, where you can take some more stem selfies with the real people who do the work. That's going to be in Melbourne. You can get over there. And voting will continue throughout the conference about these top five. The owner of the image with the most likes by Saturday, uh, June the 23rd, is going to win a $500 travel award to attend a meeting of their choice. You can go anywhere. Anywhere $500 will get you. To vote, go to the website at stemcellpodcast.com and click on the hashtag stemselfieimage on the right side which will take you to the hashtag Stem Selfie Facebook album where you can vote. All right, with that done, Kiki, stop taking pictures of yourself and round it up. I know, I've got to take all those selfies, win $500, and go to Hawaii. Wait, (laughs) I don't think that's how it works, unless there's a meeting happening. Anyway, yeah, I can't wait to see who the winners are there. So my roundup for the day. We've got a whole bunch of great science news out there. Big news that came out just yesterday. Two studies that are published in Nature Medicine this week from the Karolinska Institute and Novartis found cells whose genomes 
get successfully edited. This is successful editing by the CRISPR-Cas9 system. Hey, also have the potential to turn cancerous. And so this is kind of bad news on the CRISPR front. However, it doesn't affect all CRISPR technologies, even though as of this morning, a bunch of companies related to CRISPR technologies are seeing their stocks drop significantly. But we'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks as the news of this percolates through and the technologies continue to be studied. CEO of CRISPR Therapeutics Sam Killarney told Stat News that the results are plausible and lots of people, lots of researchers out there have noticed the effects of this CRISPR-Cas9 system on a very important part of cancer systems, which is the P53 molecule which is known to be involved in when it becomes mutated that cancers often form. So it's one of those checkpoints, and CRISPR-Cas9 is affecting it. Sam Killarney goes on to say it's something that we need to pay attention to, especially as CRISPR expands to more diseases. We need to do the work and make sure edited cells return to patients don't become cancerous. They tested CRISPR on different kinds of human cells, retinal cells, and pluripotent stem cells. And in all of those cell types, they found basically the same phenomenon at work. CRISPR-Cas9 cuts the double strands of DNA, making a double-stranded cut. That injury causes the cells to activate the P53 gene, the bio, what the, you know, can be considered a, a fixing first aid kit to block mutations. It either mends the DNA break or makes the cells self-destruct. But really, if P53 works, CRISPR doesn't because either the genome edit that CRISPR was making is stitched up by P53 or the cell gets destroyed. And so this might be involved in some of the inaccuracies and inefficiencies that have been seen in CRISPR over the past few years that it's... It, it only has effectiveness on a small minority of cells into which it's introduced. And so the flip side of all of this is that if P53 is not repairing CRISPR or killing cells, it is very likely because that cell has a dysfunctional P53 and lacks the mechanism to have a mutational checkpoint. So Novartis, their paper went on to conclude that it's going to be critical to ensure that Genome-edited cells have a functional P53 before and after genome engineering. Karolinska team warns that P53 and related genes should be monitored when developing cell-based therapies utilizing CRISPR-Cas9. I'm so glad you set it off with this CRISPR story. I mean, despite the fact that everybody's having a collective sigh and stocks are being sold at a rapid pace, because... On the back end of uh, my session, I'm going to talk about some new developments with CRISPR. And I think my point there is that, you know, I get it that the state of the art that they were using here in this study, which I would argue maybe is already a little bit old fashioned <laughs> oh, yeah. in the field, that that may be enriching for cancer cells. But I think we'll get around it. It's like every therapy, you know, the first, those, you remember those kids that had the, the uh, boy in the bubble disease, mm. and then they were treated with this, you know, they had the X skid and they were treated and they got leukemia from the cure. But right. now we have things that don't give you leukemia and also cure the boy in the bubble thing. So I feel like this is a, an important study that shows how and illustrates 
why we have to take such care, right? We yeah. have to do things slow so we can get ahead. And when the thing gives you cancer, it's not in the human already. You know what I mean? Yep. Absolutely. I mean, this is definitely not the death knell for CRISPR-Cas9. No. There's, no. Yeah, there's a lot more work to be done. And like I mentioned briefly, there are a lot of things that don't have to do with the double-stranded breaking of the DNA that just slightly disrupt one of the strands or, you know, there, there are different aspects that don't even include the P53 mechanism at all. All right, uh, moving into some of the earth and biology, an interesting study this week that I, that I wanted to include because of the methodology that they employ in it. It was published this week in Nature Microbiology, led by A. Murat Aaron of the University of Chicago and the Marine Biological Laboratory Woods Hole, and also the University of Chicago. This was a large-scale study of the Earth's surface ocean that was looking at the microbes there, but not physically looking at the microbes, digging into their genomes. This was a metagenomic study that indicated the microbes responsible for fixing nitrogen in the oceans that were previously thought to be almost exclusively photosynthetic cyanobacteria include also a group of non-photosynthetic bacterial populations. And this was basically discovered as a result of these methodologies that they use. The researchers say microbes that can fix nitrogen or carbon are at the center of the ecology of microbial communities in many environments, including the surface ocean. And so nitrogen fixation is this ecological process where atmospheric nitrogen gets converted to ammonia and makes that nitrogen bioavailable so that organisms can actually use it as a building block of DNA, RNA, and various proteins. Prior to their study, it was really thought that the marine microbes responsible for carbon fixation were also responsible for this nitrogen fixation process, but it's not that simple. This study expands the understanding of the microbiological diversity of nitrogen fixation by providing the first genomic evidence that non-photosynthetic bacteria in the ocean can carry out these reactions. They used ANVO, which is a state-of-the-art open-source bioinformatics platform that analyzes metagenomes. And so this is just a pool of DNA sequences. Like they basically stick a bucket in the ocean <laughs> and then bring it back to the lab to look at what DNA is there, what might be here. And it gives insights into what actually might be living there. And so they revealed insights into previously unknown marine microbes that have nitrogen fixation capabilities that are affiliated with proteobacteria and planktomycetes, which is the bacterial phylum that's never been linked to this process before. These populations are widespread and abundant in the ocean as well. And so the fact that they've never been noticed before is kind of, it's a neat discovery. The data was generated from the Terra Oceans Expedition, and it was took place from 2009 to 2013. They reconstructed about 1,000 microbial genomes for more than 30 billion short metagenomic sequences. And of those thousand genomes, nine contained the six genes required for nitrogen fixation and didn't have any genes for photosynthesis. And so this is the first genomic database of non-photosynthetic microorganisms in the ocean that are capable of this. And the researchers go on to say, we can now use these population genomes to guide the laboratory cultivation of nitrogen-fixing planktomycetes and proteobacteria from the open ocean. And it's going to help us understand the conditions in which they fix nitrogen, the complexity of their lifestyles and the aspects of their ecology that we just don't understand by just looking at their genomes, genes, and the inferred functions. Wow. I mean, I just get overwhelmed when 
I hear it. I get like uh, agoraphobia, you know, because I have this whole, you know, the all these movies where you're stranded in the ocean. That's like my baseline fear and anxiety surrounding the ocean. And just the idea, you just scoop a bucket in there and you get a thousand of genomes. It's just too much. The numbers, <laughs> the, you know, the, the hugeness of it. I'm, I'm like sweating over here. Kiki. Oh, yeah. I think there's more bacteria or microorganisms in like a teaspoon of ocean water than <laughs> it's it's massive. Gross. And I think study, <laughs> studies like this are at the center of really helping us understand the biodiversity on our planet, you know, because we only know the bacteria that we can culture. But there are so many others out there that we just don't know how to do that, but they're there. And so this methodology is look for the genes mm. and track it back that way. And so this metagenomic uh, process, I think, is just going to show us so much about, about our planet. I think it's cool. A new centriole has been identified in human sperm. You know, we think we know so much about these, these cells that are responsible for making us who we are. One of the things we have known for a while is there's no centriole in the egg. We knew that sperm had one centriole, but two centrioles are required for the division of the fertilized egg. But where did that other centriole come from? Where was it from? And so researchers publishing this last week in the journal Nature Communications have shown that there is a previously unidentified centriole in the sperm. It has a slightly different structure than the previous, previously known centriole, so they're calling it atypical in shape. The centrioles are important for uh, the division of the cells. They are barrel-shaped structures that uh, attach to the, they're made of micro short microtubules, but they also attach to these microtubules that kind of pull the cells apart and give the shape to the cells. Previously, researchers thought that sperm carried just one, and then that duplicated itself if the sperm met an egg. But now they know that that is not necessarily the case. Kind of interesting. Something new that we've learned about the little swimmers. That's nuts. <laughs> yeah. The missing central has been found. Wait, I don't yeah. get it. I feel like this should be a bigger deal. It's right? like, oh, yeah, they they duplicate. Oh, no. There's this cryptic hidden central. I feel like people should be talking. I know my sperm are like, oh, there it is. Yeah, you we were there the whole time. I mean, maybe it's because it is atypical in shape, but I mean, at the same time, I feel like people have been staring at these things for a long time through microscopes. <laughs> you know, going you would all, think, right? you go back to Van Leeuwenhoek and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the original. The original. I mean, the it's. The original it's, creep. <laughs> and it, it's like, really? We haven't seen that before? So it, this is an interesting finding and, uh, yeah, could explain. It's always, always the last place you look, Kiki. Always the last place you look. Yeah. And then my final story for the roundup has to do with life on Mars. No, we haven't found life on Mars. Nope, nope, nope. NASA had a big announcement last week about their Curiosity mission to Mars. But what they have found is not life, but building blocks. They found organic molecules, important organic molecules on the surface of Mars. NASA's Curiosity rover was on the slope of a, of a mountain on Mars. And it originally started in Gale Crater, didn't find anything in Gale Crater, and headed to Mount Sharp to look at some mud rocks on the slopes of Mount Sharp. 
dug in about five centimeters, which is as far as it could. So just the top soil of the area and heated up these rocks to about 500 degrees Celsius with its uh, spectrometer device, the SAM device that's on the rover. And a variety of organic compounds were discovered. Thiophenic, aromatic, and aliphatic organic compounds. Don't you love all those organic chemistry yeah. words? <laughs> that is like a rap song. <laughs> this is all reported in Science Magazine this week. The thiophatic is a, the most interesting aspect of this. The fact that sulfur has been discovered incorporated into these organic molecules which, according to the researchers, probably helps to explain how the molecules were preserved for such long periods of time. I mean, on the surface of Mars, not deep under the surface, but on the surface where they should have been degraded by solar radiation, because especially because Mars doesn't have a thick atmosphere. Other aspects that they reported in, along with this research is that they have found a very definite seasonal pattern, a cyclic pattern to the release of methane on Mars. And they don't know whether this methane is being released just from molecular stores or geological processes under the surface of Mars, or whether it's actually bacteria living under the surface of Mars and seasonally being stimulated to release the methane into the atmosphere. But this is something that they are going to be looking at into the future in the next year, I think in 2020, the ExoMars mission is going to be headed to Mars, where instead of just being able to dig five centimeters into the surface, it'll dig two meters below the surface and hopefully be able to determine, answer a lot of questions that are still outstanding. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be an a-hole for a minute here. Just do it. Somebody's got to do it. And there's all these a-holes out here. Nobody has to thing. be an a-hole. Come I'm gonna, on. I'm not. I don't have to. I want to. Okay. I, okay. I am who I am. All right. So they find out something, something, and a trillion dollars later, and there's organic, and there was life from ours, whatever. Then what? Just remind me why, why we care about this. I know we do. I know it's important. Just remind me and all the other a-holes. <laughs> so if, you know, number one, if we find living life on Mars, it means that you know, life is not alone. But there are bacteria who are able to exist in very extreme, extremophiles, that's it, extreme conditions mm -hmm. where they're able to survive here on Earth. The idea that they could exist elsewhere in the solar system is very exciting. And even if they are not living still on Mars, given the conditions, if life did at one Point. Bacterial life even existed at one point in time on Mars. It means that life on Earth is not alone, that the likelihood of life existing not just elsewhere in the solar system, but elsewhere in the universe becomes exponentially stronger. So the evidence of finding it elsewhere means that it's that life's ability to come about in the first place is probably very widespread. It will change our perspective on ourselves dramatically. You got me on that one. That's worth a trillion dollars. That right? is worth it. I'll spend my trillion on that. Take my taxes. All right. All right. Don't take my taxes right now. Tell me some stories about stem cells. All right. I'm going to tell you. I'm in the blood zone. I've been doing all your neural, all your neural people. I'm angry today for some reason. I don't know. It's because I haven't <laughs> ranted in a while. <laughs> we got rid of the rants and now you're just angry? Come I'm on. I'm pent up. I'm pent up. Uh, <laughs> But uh, I was going to say, I'm not doing any neural stories today, okay? 
That's okay. Neural mafia. I forgive you. Blood, okay. I love it. But it's also a little bit of cancer. We're dipping. We're all over. Uh, so starting with this cancer mutinome. All right. This is a story out of the NIH, the NCI. You got to respect anyone who comes out of NIH and does good work there. I, I'm always very impressed because I think they're kind of limited. They can only hold one grant. It's tough. It's tough. Anyway, Steve Rosenberg lab there. This concept of like the cancer mutinome, okay, is this idea that cancer cells, unlike your normal self cells, they develop all these aberrations genetically that make them distinguishable by the immune system. And so these like neoepitopes, they're called, that can be specifically targeted by the immune system uh, while preserving the self cells. So you won't attack yourself. So, the, you know, the limitations there have been, we haven't really in the past, although this idea has been out there for a while, you haven't had the resolution to identify what those neo-epitopes are because, you know, you haven't had the sequencing technology, et cetera. And also there've been some other fundamental limitations relating to the, what cancer types these therapies are useful for. And I'm going to elaborate that in a second. The, a, a well-established, people don't talk about this enough, but I think there's a, it should be known that there's a pretty well-established therapy for solid tumors uh, that's kind of been overshadowed by these blood-borne tumors and CAR-T therapies, which I'm mm-hmm. actually going to talk about in a second. But there's therapies for solid tumors, which are based on these autologous tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes, okay? And the idea there is that you take the tumor, you find the immune cells, the T-cells that are in there, with the idea that they've already, like, recognized the tumor and they're, like, expanding. You take them out, you expand them ex vivo, and then you infuse them back into the patient in a massive bolus, and they home in and, like, melt the tumor. And it's an idea that actually works. It's worked, but mostly against tumors that have what's called a high somatic mutation burden. But the idea being that you need to have a very broad spectrum of other, you know, different mutations as opposed to yourself and new mutations because the immune system will only target a, a very small subset of those. So it's been used only on like cutaneous melanoma, lung cancer that's linked to smoking. These are tumors that are cancers that have a high mutation burden. And it's been thought that other tumors with fewer mutations, just as like, for example, in this case, hormone receptor positive breast cancer has been thought to be, quote, off limits for this kind of mutinome directed therapy. But work out of uh, Steve Rosenberg lab at the NIH, they've kind of, you know, reset that dogma. They treated a patient which had metastatic estrogen receptor positive breast cancer with multiple disseminated tumors refractory to all lines of therapy. So this is a patient who was going to die and imminently. And what they did is they used this big data approach which I think that's the theme of today. We're talking about big data. You know, we're talking to Ben Friedman about his robotics approach. And similarly, these authors, they took this RNA sequencing and whole exome sequencing approach to identify a bunch of recurrent mutations, point mutations in the tumor. And in parallel, they isolated these tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, call them TILs, T-I-Ls, and they expanded them and then selected for T-cells that showed reactivity to these neoepitopes that they documented by the sequencing, okay? Long story short, they found that these were reactive against these specific four genes. They infused the patient back in with 
80 billion of these tills that were expanded ex vivo. And in addition, they added a novel wrinkle and innovation in this therapy is that they also treated them with this other immunotherapy called immune checkpoint blockade. And the combination of both these therapies resulted in follow-up analysis with the patient's complete remission after 42 weeks of these subcutaneous and liver metastases and with no therapy. That's without conjunction of any other kind of chemo that hadn't worked, which is an unprecedented response to this novel class of tumors. So this is a remarkable case. It's one patient, but it sets the stage for a lot of future testing on both the effectiveness of this type of tumor infiltrating lymphocyte-based therapy and this approach for doing it. And it also dispels the dogma that you've got to have tumors with a high mutation burden, which, you know, given the constellation of all cancers out there are relative few. So it opens the door to all these cancers. Mm. So I think we're really, you know, banging down the door with these immunotherapies for cancer. And it's really moving at such a rapid pace. I think we're approaching like you know, above 95% survival of most cancers in this is amazing. the next decade. That's my um, prediction. I like the way that you phrased that, actually, because for years I've been talking about cancer and treatments for cancer and the technologies, and everybody always wants it to be a cure for cancer. But I think the way that you phrased it is really nice, which is that we're approaching a really high survival rate, right. that we are getting to a point where we're able to treat people. It's not a cure, but we are approaching a really high survival rate and, and it's getting there faster. I think we're in that exponential part of the curve. Yeah. I mean, if you told me, my wife is anxious. So you tell her 95% survival and she's like, oh no, I'm going to die. You tell me 95%, I'm going out for a drink. Yeah. <laughs> so Great on news. that same note, we got this other therapy that I alluded to is adopted transfer of T cells that are modified with things called chimeric antigen receptors. This is the so-called CAR-T therapy, and it's been used with great success to target B-cell-based leukemia by targeting the CD19 molecule. It offers a permanent cure, and it avoids all the, you know, obvious devastating effects of chemotherapy, which, you know, is pretty much poisoning yourself. Yeah. But the catch with this CAR-T therapy is that you have this acute phase for almost all patients where you have this short-term toxicity related to cytokine release syndrome, or CRS. And, I mean, less commonly, but also very prevalent uh, neurotoxicity that's associated with the treatment. The CRS, it's this inflammatory response that's thought to arise from the cytokines that are produced by this storm of immune cells that flood into the system. It's characterized by high fevers, myalgia, malaise. And, you know, when it gets serious, you have vascular leak, hypotensive, hypoxic patients, they have blood clots, organ failure, death. Ah. So, yeah, pretty bad. <laughs> and this has been a big deal. You know, everyone's cheering these therapies and there's companies, the stocks are being hugely inflated, and then you have these adverse events, which are namely CRS-related death, and the stocks go plunging. So it's a big deal in the field. It's holding it back, and it's uh, something that needs to be dealt with we're going to put into common practice. And the neurotoxic uh, side effects can also be very severe with headaches, reduced consciousness, delirium, and also death with cerebral bleeds and seizures. So that obviously we need to address this, but there's not like a good model for it, even though we think 
and there's a lot of evidence to show that it arises from the cytokines that are released by myeloid cells. There's been some evidence in response to the infusion of T cells. We don't have a good model, and that's because you know we're using human tumors in an immunocompromised mouse, so the mouse doesn't have an immune system that's accurately going to recapitulate the CRS. And also, you have the masking. The whole thing is that the human immune cells are kind of attacking the mouse. So you have this GVHD, graft-versus-host disease, that is masking the inflammation from that, is masking the CRS. But from two groups, one from Italy, San Rafael University, and one from uh, Sloan Kettering, Michelle Satterlane's group, they have published in Parallel Nature Medicine a couple of insights. They've developed models for CRS. In, in the one in Bondazzo's group from San Rafael, they did CRS in order to avoid the GBHD complication. They used human T cells, but they were matured in humanized mice. So they were tolerant. They were in a mouse environment, so they were tolerant to mouse antigens. So they weren't going to have the graft host disease. And in contrast, Michelle Satterlane's group, they exploited the mouse-human difference to actually make the link, showing that human cells caused an upregulation of IL-1 and IL-6 in the mouse macrophage myeloid cells, and that, in turn, was causing the effects of CRS. That was causing the CRS. And then both groups went on to show that by not only blocking IL-1 receptor, but also IL-6 receptor, that they could essentially get rid of the CRS and the neurotoxicity while retaining the activity of these CAR T cells. So it's a big deal. I think they, with this kind of two-pronged approach, they can make the therapy much safer, which is really the, the major roadblock in having these approaches. Well, uh, as opposed to, I mean, in addition to cost, it's still pretty expensive, but um, it's the major roadblock to getting these therapies into mass, you know, mass use, mass clinical applications. So. Yeah, because right now it's really very limited in who they're giving these CAR T therapies to. I mean, number one, because of cost, and number two, because of all these side effects and the fact that it's not just going to work easily. But I love this approach because it kind of balances the ease of using mice in the laboratory environment and, you know, not being able to do human studies in this kind of thing. So you've got the humanized mice that takes advantage of the human immune system and Hopefully, it'll get past that graft versus host issue. Hopefully. I think that the amount of resources that are being allocated for this are mind-boggling. So this is one of those therapies that everybody's rooting for it. Everybody's invested in it. You know, we're, we're chipping away at these stumbling blocks. It's kind of like what you were talking about with the CRISPR. You know, the stumbling blocks are coming down as the technology develops. And that's the theme today, staying in blood. And this is story in Nature Cell Biology from Connie Eve's lab at the Terry Fox Laboratory in the British Columbia Cancer Center. That may sound familiar. Connie Eve's wife of Alan Eve, CEO yeah. of Stem Cell. I got to get that out there as a disclaimer. <laughs> but we aren't, you know, cherry picking here. This isn't a nepotism. This is a, an important study that I'm just going to briefly go over. It's a resource that was in Nature Cell Biology and, and pretty much bottom lining it. What they did is, you know, first of all, the, the history of hematopoietic stem cell therapy emerged like about 50 odd years ago with this fundamental discovery of self-renewing hematopoietic stem cells, these so-called HSCs uh, that existed in the bone marrow of adult mice. 
And that has led to really the, the, the whole basis of cell therapy. All cell therapy begins with bone marrow transplant. And that was the first cell therapy that's led to, I would venture, millions of lives saved. Never, you know, needless to say, a lot of lives saved. But interestingly, and you know, following from that cord blood, and you could argue this is the foundation of stem cell technologies was uh, the hematopoietic stem cell. Anyway, cord blood now is in wide use, but the, the, the problem still, it's not even a problem, but I, say, I guess the limitation is that there's a whole spectrum of phenotypic cells that have very nuanced differences within the hematopoietic compartment. And it's hard to tell which of them are like the real stem cell or to which degree they have this long-term repopulating ability. And there's studies in human and in primates that have kind of tracked by vector marking or using lentiviral labeling or what have you in gene therapy trials or in non-human primates that have kind of looked at the back end and said, okay, there's relative stability. Six months to a year later, you have a relative few clones that end up maintaining steady state. But on the front end, you can't predict what those clones are. So what uh, Dr. Reeves and her group did is they looked at, they fractionated by using a whole medley of single cell approaches, including functional analysis, like the proliferative capacity of these cells and phenotype. In addition, single cell transcriptomics, methylomics, looking at this mass flow cytometric analysis of 40 proteins. So they threw the whole kitchen sink at this population of long-term repopulating cells and essentially showed that there's a subset in there that is like the real goody gravy hematopoietic progenitor that can really do the work. So it's a resource that I can't even begin to scrape the surface, the level of resolution and detail they went into it. But I have to say, I can't help just picturing Alan and Connie, you know, so cute, and like hand in hand and doing science. I know if I had my wife in the lab, it wouldn't be so productive. Uh, what about you, Kiki? If you had to do a podcast with your husband, would that work? No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's camera shy and microphone shy, so it would be me talking and then silence. So, no. <laughs> just like your relationship. <laughs> Hush. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm down to the last one. This is a shout out to Janet, the lovely Janet Rasan, who was on the, on the show a couple, three, four episodes. I don't know. But I don't know about you. I saw you didn't see this at home, guys. On the video, I saw she had a little smug, wry little grin on her face. And I think it's because the whole while we were talking, she was sitting on this bomb of a story that was in Nature Biotechnology. So background, and also this is circling back to your the argument, the discussion we we're having earlier about the rapid progression of CRISPR technology. So, you know, CRISPR-Cas, it, it transformed the whole game. We know that for therapeutics, but also just fundamentally in a, as a tool, it kind of bypassed the whole idea of having to make transgenic mice by using embryonic stem cells. Used to have to culture these stem cells and then target them and grow them and then put them in a mouse, make chimeras. Generations later, you have your founder population. And then CRISPR came along, you could directly inject the you know zygote and get recombination there uh, in a pretty targeted way. And also, you could multiplex these things. Rudy Yanish famously showed he targeted like three genes for knockout at once in an oocyte or more. Who knows? 
the, the number of studies that have developed on this are numerous, but uh, Rasant just kind of blew them all out of the water with this mass approach, okay, that she calls 2CHR CRISPR. So this is based on the idea, okay, first of all, that when you do the, the targeting in the typical way directly into the embryo, you are limited in that you may have imprecise. It's easier to knock things out than it is to get things in. And it's much easier to knock them out than get in. But getting stuff in is tough. And a, a, a big reason to make mouse transgenic mice is to generate like reporters, fluorescent reporter lines that allow you to visualize uh, cell types. So Janet and her group were focused on how they could do this in an efficient way. And they exploited the fact that homologous recombination is really active in the late S to G2 phase of the cell cycle. That's when there's like a big cleanup. So they reasoned that at the two cell stage of embryonic development would be ideal window for doing the gene targeting because the G2 phase in the, at the two cell stage is exceptionally long relative to all other phases. And it's also synchronized across all developing embryos, as well as the fact that that's where you have zygotic or the maternal to zygotic transition, where you go from maternal transcripts to zygotic transcripts, genome activation, which allows for, you know, open chromatin state. For all these reasons, they thought this would be a good time for targeting. Oh, boy, was it. They showed that in these embryos, using this two-cell homologous recombination, or 2CHR, CRISPR, it was super efficient. They could achieve tenfold increase in conventional methods. So that brings it up to, ladies and gentlemen, 95%. Okay, so 19 out of 20 of their embryos are knocked in correctly, right, which is nuts. Uh And then they went on to target 20 genes. They just, on a lark, made 20 knock-in mice, which included a triple color mouse that had all three lineages differentially labeled with different colors, and these auxin-inducible degradation systems. They just made, like, pretty much every tool that exists in molecular biology and mouse genetics they did it in one paper using this efficient method, and it's going to be pretty much run for the bank with everyone trying to get these resources to make their mouse of interest. And it's really going to open all the doors. Jenna Rasan, I saw that grin on your face. <laughs> Count your money. You saw it. Yeah. I mean, we're going to keep coming back to CRISPR again and again because it is such a promising technology, and it's advances like this that are going to make all the difference. I mean, if it's more efficient, and then maybe she can go back and check that these, the what, 19 out of 20 zygotes, embryos, that they that they don't have a missing or a dysfunctional P53. I mean, maybe she needs to go back and check that. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. But on that point, that's where I was like, wow, it, to circle back around to what we were saying earlier, like, I would think that there was an a priori, there's P53 dysfunction, and those are the cells that it works in. You know what I mean? Yeah. But when you have 19 out of 20, you'd have to then argue that there's 19 out of 20 conditions in which the P53 doesn't work. You know what I mean? So I I feel like this may be just based on the numbers. It may be surmounting that like it may still preferably work or work better in P53 dysfunction. But I think that it's it's so efficient that it is able to to surmount the activity of P53 and even work in with a functioning P53. But who knows? You're right. That on the back end, this is what she'll do. And the great news is, is that she has mice yep. that, you know, are forever going to be able to breed and amplify this specific integration. So 
it should be pretty easy for her to do the downstream analysis. And just as a note, I, I always look in these papers when I see something really innovative in a, in a trendy field, and I look to see the conflict and to see what patents are pending. And I always am so impressed by researchers who have all their stuff on adgene and have no IP claims on the thing. And that, this is one of those. This is a case of Janet, you know, she's big up enough. She doesn't need more money or she doesn't care about it. She's right. just putting this out there and it's going to change so many labs. A young lab who couldn't do it before, they're like, yeah, well, fundamentally, we don't have the personnel. They're going to now be able to do this. So it's awesome. It's a great advance. And there will be more of them. This is, it's hot. CRISPR's Every hot, week. hot, hot. That's Got right. more every week. Keep coming. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then something like, I think it was the Novartis paper. They'd put their data out for preliminary review. Uh, it's been out since last summer. And nobody said anything about it until this paper came out with the Karolinska Institute paper. You know, so it's like timing and public response. And, you know, it's like, when do people notice things and actually play off of them? So there's so much information out there. But it's time for us to get some more information. But before we get to the interview, do you need more organoids in your lab? Stem Cell Technologies and Cell Press have teamed up to deliver the Growing Organoids from Stem Cells wall chart. It's authored by Hans Cleavers and Toshiro Sato. This handy reference provides an overview on culturing epithelial organoids. Plus, it looks great hanging on the lab wall. Request your copy at www.stemcell.com slash organoid wall chart. Now on to our interview. Our guest today is stem cell biologist and tissue engineer, Dr. Ben Friedman. Dr. Friedman's lab has developed techniques to efficiently differentiate HPSCs into kidney organoids in a reproducible multi-well format, a prototype kidney in a dish. The goal of his research is to use these new tools to model human kidney disease and identify therapeutic approaches, including kidney regeneration. Dr. Friedman, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to have you on. So can you give us a little bit of background into the focus of your work and how you came to focus on it? Well, the focus of our work is to take stem cells and grow new kidney tissue for people. That's the long-term goal. And the way I came about doing this is because at the end of my graduate school, I was seeking something to do with my newfound wealth of knowledge. And at the time, kidney disease appeared in my family, not in just one place, but in a couple of different places. And that was enough to get me thinking about how to use stem cells for kidney disease. So a personal story, I mean, I was going to ask something else, but let's follow up on that. I mean, as someone, I know researchers who have either been personally afflicted in the, with the disease in their field. I've read these stories of bizarre twists of fate where someone's working on a disease. I don't know if you heard about this, but I think it was, I don't know where it is. I'm not going to say it, but a researcher was working on a disease and then her child ended up being affected by this very rare disease. So I think people are really interested in how that affects or motivates or maybe like an experimental failure is that much more daunting. Can you tell us how it is when it seems like you have a personal stake in the work? How is it day to day? What are the highs and lows there? I think that uh, for me, it's not that I have the disease directly, but there are family members. It definitely helps keep you inspired. It's really an entry point more than anything else, I think, for scientists, at least for me. Because what happens is these problems are out there. 
you don't necessarily think about them until they come knocking on your door. And then it opens your eyes to the problem and all the millions of people that are affected by it. And then you start looking at the science and you realize where the holes are and where progress could be made or how fascinating is that question? Why the heck isn't anybody studying it? And so then you get to studying it. And what are some of the approaches that you use? We know that some of your most recent work deals with organoids, but beyond that, you make use of a lot of modern tools. What tools are you using and how have you come to take advantage of the new modern technologies in your work? I'm sort of classically trained as a biochemist and cell biologist. For me, the tools are a means to an end, and I'm actually pretty resistant in general to picking them up unless I think they're really going to advance the work. In the case of our organoids, I think a lot of the tools that we have ended up using these tools, and the impetus for it is because we need to get somewhere. For example, for looking at a disease, we need to be able to examine many, many conditions at once, and therefore, we start turning to robots and saying, can we use these robots to automate the process of generating our little organoids and automating the process of doing these experiments so that we really can investigate thousands of different potential drugs. So it's really necessity being the mother of invention. I wouldn't discount the value of the classical tools for what we've done. I think they're equally powerful. You know, there's still nothing better than a Western block for understanding protein levels. In terms of, I mean, just circling back, the tools, there's a feast of uh, assay and novel, innovative, cutting-edge tools you use for this story. And I think we want to get into that a bit. First, let's start at the beginning. You started by saying that your goal, really fundamentally, simply put, is to make kidney cells for people. And I just want to talk about where you see the end game there. Obviously, this story seems to be focused on how do you get there? How do you get to making the tissues, not only the cells, but the tissues? And then how do you kind of get insight into disease, not necessarily by making an organ, but by deconstructing organ and its processes? What do you think the best or first medical translational application of your technology is? Do you think it's going to be insight or do you think we're going to get to kind of organs, little cellular factories that we can transplant? Well, I think it's going to be the insights, you know, and it comes down to what you just mentioned, which is the deconstructing idea. I always think of this quote by Dr. Richard Feynman. And he was a physicist, but he said, what I cannot create, I do not understand. And I want that to be true in biology. You've got to be able to grow something and reconstruct it in order to understand how it actually works. And this is true not only of tissues, but also of disease. And I think that's the immediate benefit of these little organoids, is that we can use them to understand, to tinker, to take apart, and to rebuild and figure out how these different processes actually work at the biological level. I love the biology and physiology of the kidney. Like, it, they're just, you know, the specific areas of the kidney, take water out, put water back in, create the urine. So when you're creating the organoids, there are multiple cell types, definitely, in different areas. Like, what specificity are you getting into? Which areas of the kidney? Are you really trying to recapitulate the entire kidney in this little tiny organoid? There's probably 20 or 30 different cell types within the kidney. 
And they not only have to all come along, but they all have to be there in the right order and arrangement. So it's really a very intricate and complex organ. It's a great challenge, this type of work. Now, the great thing is we don't have to do all the work ourselves. If we get the stem cells to the right stage, then they'll actually build a lot of these structures on their own. And that's why we can make these organoids. You know, what's really an organoid? An organoid is really a multicellular unit that has a pattern that really resembles tissue at a structural and functional level. So we're lucky in a sense that the stem cells can recreate these really beautiful and intricate patterns, which we didn't know would happen, but happens to be that that's how it works. So the challenge now is, you know, are we really making the entire kidney in terms of the different pieces, different cell types that are there? And how do we get them to structure themselves in an even higher level of organization where they really can function like that, like the kidney? In terms of the first question of what the cell types we really have that are there, I'd say most of the really significant kidney cell types are the ones that are the epithelial cells of the uh, more proximal part of the nephron. So the nephron is this little subunit of the kidney. It's a, it's a little microfluidic filter unit, if you will. And that first piece of it, it's pretty clear we've got those cell types there. But the further pieces of it, the pieces downstream in this filter unit, where it all comes together and collects into a big duct, and that's actually what the urine comes out of, it looks to us like pieces there are missing. That was one of the things we learned doing these last series of experiments. So we still have a little bit of a ways to go, because if we can't make that piece, then the, the front piece isn't going to be as useful. Part of that you alluded to, you know, that, that all the cell types in the kidney and, and one of the major insights from your story here was that endothelium, it seemed like this provascular, proangiogenic influence late in differentiation seemed to benefit in terms of, well, I don't want to speak about what I don't know. So maybe you can tell me what was the benefit? Is it like the idea that the endothelium would provide a vascular kind of perfusion function in vivo? Or is it this paracrine, angiocrine influence that is kind of emerging in the field as a major contributor to organogenesis, the influence of endothelial cell released factors, that is? The holy grail is really to have a vascularized kidney structure. And the reason that's so important is because the kidney's essential function is to condition and process the blood. And Therefore, we need to have that access to the blood. That's what the vasculature provides. So what we did in the paper is just a first step towards this, is to enrich the vascular cells that were within our organoid cultures. We already had a few of them showing up in the dish alongside our kidney organoids. But by looking at different growth factors, we could actually greatly increase you know, by about tenfold the number of vascular cells that were present. That's an important first step because you need to have the blood vessel cells there if you're going to create a vasculature. But it is not the holy grail yet. You know, where we have to go is to now create a functional vasculature wherein the blood vessels are supplying nutrients to the growing structure and the growing structure in turn is filtering that blood through the tubules and processing it, conditioning it, making it physiologically healthy blood. 
that's where we need to go. And if we can get to that point, then you can start thinking about there. What are the factors that are still holding that back potentially? Do you have a direction to be searching like for particular chemical factors that might allow this functional vasculature? Because it's not only in kidney work. I mean, all of the organs that we're trying to synthetically create, I mean, this is what's holding it back in a major sense. Do you have any sense of this from your own work? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's so funny because the blood vessels, everybody basically has ignored for, you know, a long time, except for a little bit in the field of cancer. But, you know, developmentally, we're all focused on our little organ of interest. And then there's this elephant in the room with the vasculature where we haven't been able to actually generate blood vessels that are functional. So how do you get there? You know, you have to think about how the body does it. How is the body creating vessels? How is the body using blood vessels? If you take structures and put them into an animal, do they become vascularized? Do they become vascularized in the right way? Our situation in vitro is very, very different in a dish, in a, in a petri dish. What we're doing is we're bathing the cells in nutrients without need of a blood vessel system. So it's almost like, are they actually even going to want one if they don't need one? I don't think so. There's an opportunity here, I think, that'll be broken open probably in the next decade or so to really create vasculature and create vascularized growing structures. And when that happens, it's going to be a big moment. It's going to be a big technology for everybody who's in this field. Getting to this, I guess, moment of singularity, I guess we're kind of in that realm now when we can have this transformative discovery that allows the, the development of large organs or other types of ideas. Along those lines, I was reading in uh, Bloomberg just today an article, and the headline was, we're worrying about the wrong kind of AI. You know, everyone's going crazy about AI and uh, the real singularity uh, this guy talks about and made famous. I forget his name. And the point of this article is that the real thing that we should be talking about is how they're making these mini brains and these organoids. And that it's just a matter, like, you know, they say, oh, at this time, they're severely limited and et cetera. They are essentially useless in terms of like higher order function. But and then they say pretty much a sentence, which makes the illusion of like, it's just a matter of a few more, you know, dotting the I's and we're going to have brains. And that's the real thing. And I think that that's maybe the popular consciousness is this idea that we're on the precipice of making organs. And I, because I'm become older and boring, and I'm like, no way, just because I see a lot of fundamental obstacles. And interestingly, we had Nicholas Rivron on the show uh, last episode, and he was talking about how you can plant the seed of these synthetic embryos, but it's difficult to get them to a chain of events that leads to a well-formed embryo. And I think you're talking also about this idea, you plant the seed, you set the, the piece in place, and then the, the biology takes care of itself. What is the path to making large organs? I mean, I don't expect you to, to come up with the innovative, fundamental, transformed discovery, but like I might argue that if we're not going to get there on the level of higher order without something that I can't even imagine, and that's probably due to the limits of my imagination. But what would you say to someone like me, perhaps, who says, we're not really going to get to organs and that this fear of like brains in a dish and also maybe the promise of having like ready-made kidneys in the fridge 
is more science fiction? What would you, be your response to my boring cynicism? 50 years ago, they thought we would be flying in cars by now, and we're not. Right. So I've got a little bit of cynicism in me, too. And I think that it's easy to overhype the potential of these systems. When you're actually in the weeds with them, you begin to see some of the challenges that are there. All that being said, we've learned over time that there is tremendous potential in biological systems. So a single cell anywhere in the body really harbors all the information needed to grow, not just an organ, but an entire person. I think that's a radical thought. And it's really a matter of unlocking those natural processes. I wouldn't say we're a few steps away from those end games. I think it's more like we're more like cavemen, you know, rubbing stones together to make sparks and create fire at this point. If you look at the singularity idea, which was not, I don't think, based on any sort of actual real hardcore science, those, the time I think that it was originally supposed to occur has come and passed. So I don't think that it's like we're at that point. But I do think we'll get there. And I think it's all a matter of how much energy and resources and time society puts into it. And, you know, whether it's a curve that takes us 100 years or 20 years, I think is all a matter of real investment. So I think we'll get there. I think the potential is there in the system. And the way it's going to happen is not by one person tinkering with it or one person coming up with a great aha moment, but rather I think the entire field continuously pushing along, making progress, and then eventually things begin to click into place. The automation that you've started using in your work, do you think that's going to be part of this? Like you said, the high throughput work, being able to try more things. You don't have to have as many grad students. You can maybe get as much, get more done even. Do you see this new technology, these robots you're talking about? I mean, this isn't the AI singularity, but it is definitely what's giving your research a step up. You know, we use it now in almost everything we do. To some degree, the high throughput methodology is just very useful when you're doing stem cell experiments. You know, the platforms work very well together because you have these organs in a dish and then you have the robots that can grow them and analyze them. And I think what makes it really special is that you can perform functional experiments. You know, you can perturb a condition and actually get a real output, not just some, you know, level of a gene that's different, but actually, you know, a functional change in your organoid. You go from an organoid without endothelial cells or with very few to an organoid with many, many endothelial cells. Maybe one lineage is missing and now it's here, or maybe you've got a disease phenotype and now it's rescued. So, you know, pharmaceutical companies have been using these robots for decades now, essentially, through their experiments. And I think that now it's time for our academic labs. The technology is not that expensive. Academic labs can now get in on this and use it as a big data tool to perform functional experiments, but with more sophisticated types of systems than what the pharmaceutical companies have been using, because those simple cell systems are, are just not getting us to where we need to go. So I think it's going to take off. And hopefully, it's not just our lab. I think there's many labs out there that are now exploring these technologies. Yeah, one other thing that I was really impressed with, with your study in particular, it illustrates well about the technology at large, is this 
kind of unbiased element. Specifically in your study, it kind of, you know, a lot of science is hypothesis driven and you find what you're looking for. And in this study, because you're using this high throughput system, you were able to stumble upon myosin as playing a significant role in polycystic kidney disease. Can you elaborate on one, why that was so surprising and maybe a little bit of detail on what that means and how you can kind of leverage that finding or elaborate on it to kind of further gain, gain further insight? Yeah, so you're right. And uh, it was a very surprising finding for us as well. So I'll give you a little bit of the backstory here. Polycystic kidney disease or PKD is a very common kidney disease in which the kidneys swell up and the tubules essentially form these balloon-like structures, which we call cysts. They're filled with fluid and eventually they crowd out all the healthy tissue and kill the kidneys. Now, we've known the genes that cause this disease for 20 years or so. And everybody thought as soon as we cloned the genes, we'd have the cure for the disease. But the problem is it turns out they're actually pretty hard to figure out what these genes actually do. You know, the proteins that they encode, one is a large receptor-like molecule, kind of like a hand sticking out, but it does, no one knows what it actually binds to. So nobody knows what it's a receptor for, what's shaking the hand. The other side, you have another gene which encodes a channel protein, which is sort of like a hole at the membrane of the cell, but nobody knows if anything actually goes through the hole. So we've essentially got to this dead end in our ability to understand the disease. And it's gotten to the point where people are so frustrated, they're just beginning to develop drugs about processes which may or may not be involved. So we took sort of a unbiased approach to it in the sense that we screened several different types of factors that could be involved in polycystic kidney disease. And to our surprise, the one that had the biggest effect was this drug called blevastatin, which actually is a drug that blocks muscle contractility. And in this case, when, when we blocked contractility in our organoids, which don't have much muscle, the organoids swelled out and they formed much larger cyst structures like balloons. And it, it was happening specifically in the organoids that had the mutations that caused polycystic kidney disease and not in the controls. So I think what it was telling us is that there's some process there for these genes that we don't really understand what they're doing, connecting to this muscle protein of myosin, which is known to be involved in contractility. And if you really think about it, it kind of makes sense because just like muscles have to stay contracted and keep their form, so too, epithelial cells in the kidney have to stay in a certain shape and keep compacted to keep their shape and prevent themselves from expanding out and forming what essentially is a cyst. It kind of makes sense in retrospect, and we know that there are myosin proteins expressed in these kidney cells, but we would not have known it, we would not have guessed it on our own, right? We sort of needed this unbiased approach to teach us that. And I think there's a lot more out there on that level for all sorts of disease processes and probably also for generating organs, the processes that are involved in stem cell differentiation. There's a lot of unknown connections. And I think you're right. This technology is a way to make those connections. What are your next steps as you're moving forward with this research? Where are you going next? We're going to follow up on the myosin connection. We're going to be looking at larger panels of drugs to see whether we can find one that actually prevents this very common disease. 
And on the organoid side, we're going to be adding in growth factors and drugs and different types of combinations at different times at a much larger scale to see if we can actually elicit some of the cell types that we're hoping to get but don't think are there right now in the kidney organoids. Likewise, we want to make more mature cells. You know, one of the surprising things we discovered is that you know, most of the cells in the dish aren't very mature. The mature cell types are sort of the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole bunch of cells that are sort of lurking beneath the surface that are trying to get mature but aren't quite there yet. We have to figure out how to get them more mature. And then I think at a very immediate level, we're, we're investigating the potential of these robotic systems for toxicity screening. You know, a lot of times you can come up with something that's actually a fairly effective drug, but it fails late in the drug development pathway because it ends up being toxic to one organ or another. So if we can actually use these screening technologies and organoids to predict what drug's going to actually be toxic and which one is maybe going to be more safe, then I think we can apply that in general as a tool for all these different types of drugs, both that are out there or the ones that are still in development. You're really uh, going for it all, my friend. And uh, thank God for you. At this point, you know, we at this at the end of the show. We uh, like to do this segment. It's kind of like the Wheel of Fortune of questions, except, you know, not so many options. We have three questions, okay? And we arrived at the most appropriate question for you. I think, you know, you're a young scientist newly independent, relatively newly independent. I know you had a K award, so transition to independence. You came from a big lab, Joseph Bonaventure at Brigham or Harvard, one of the, you know, the H-bomb in that neighborhood. So maybe you could give some advice to young scientists, maybe who are transitioning, maybe some who look up to you as someone who succeeded, who escaped a big lab and an army of postdocs and was able to bring their innovation from their kind of mentored situation and then use that as the foundation of your own very successful lab with some very successful stories, the foundation of a strong NIH portfolio. Give some advice on how you've navigated that, would you? Sure. You know, I think a lot of it is find something that inspires you and hammer away at it and don't give up. I think there's so many other ways that people can go. And I think there's so much discouragement. You're going to get people trashing your grant. You're going to get people trashing your paper and you just have to brush it off and remember that the whole thing should be taken with a little bit of humor. Don't take it too seriously. Find yourself people who will support you who are higher up on the ladder. I've been lucky in that regard. And don't be afraid to ask for things when you need them. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for advice. There is a system set up and the system is not perfect, but it is made to hopefully support us and hopefully get us through these difficult transitional periods of our career. And we should be using that system to the most of our abilities. We should be voicing ourselves. We should be voicing our concerns, not in a sort of individual comment-based group, but rather as a unit. And, you know, we are, as young scientists, the future of science. If we don't carry it forward, if we wither on the vine, then the process will not move forward on its own. So it's really critical 
I think for us, if we are encountering difficulties, to talk about it and to make sure that it's remedied. I think there's a lot of people who want us to succeed. That's what I would say. We shouldn't have to carry the entire burden on our own. We should really make sure that the people, everybody in the system knows what's needed, and we should all work together to make sure that those resources are there. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I meet a lot of scientists who feel it so personally and are embarrassed to talk about their failures or the the score they got on the grant or that it wasn't discussed. And they think they'll go to their potential mentors and they'll scoff at them. But I believe, like you, that they want you to succeed and they're not really competing you. That's the idea, I think, that pervades is that the big scientists are always trying to keep the little scientists down. But I think you're right. There's a lot more out there that are rooting for young scientists than the others. So that's great advice. Dr. Freeman, thanks for talking to us. This is such a fun, insightful, great interview. Kiki, done it again. So wonderful. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been just great getting to talk to you about your work. It's my pleasure being here. Thank you, guys. You're welcome. And everyone out there, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to send us your thoughts and questions on Twitter. We're at Stem Cell Podcast. Or you can email us, info at stemcellpodcast.com. Don't forget to take our survey. Stemcellpodcast.com is where you can find it. And be sure to tune in for our next episode. This concludes episode 119 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Dalen, thank you for another great show. Dr. Friedman, again, thank you for joining us. And everyone, we hope to see you again next week.